You are listening to A Royal Tragedy, a production of Baseball Will Break Your Heart. Researched, written, and narrated by me, Paul J. Atwood. Produced and scored by Joe Newman. To a royal tragedy presented by Baseball Will Break Your Heart. In chapter one of part one, we covered the royals' fall from greatness and their mysterious resurrection under the supernatural guidance of Ned Yost. In chapter two, we're gonna crew up like it's an early 2000s heist movie. Please enjoy the continuation of A Royal Tragedy. After getting Ned Yost on loan from the Dark Lord, the Royals traded notoriously temperamental starting pitcher Zach Grinke to the Milwaukee Brewers. Despite pitching the best season in Royals history in 2009, Grinke's tediously quirky tenure with the Royals was an offbeat disaster fit for a Wes Anderson film. He was socially awkward, riddled with anxiety, hated the beloved fountains that spring beyond the outfield walls, and wanted to quit baseball entirely to become a groundskeeper and mow lawns. He missed most of the 2006 season as rumors circulated about a complete nervous breakdown, but he rebounded and returned to the sport, winning the Cy Young Award in 2009. In return for Grinky, Kansas City received two players to make names for themselves later. Alcides Escobar and Lorenzo Cain. They were fast and could put the ball in play and both had gloves from a secret Rawlings plant in the Nevada desert that seemed to have a mysterious gravitational pull. The skill set these two players brought to Kaufman would become the core of the Royals' strategy to reclaim the crown. Gritty hit and run offense and gloves like an event horizon. Escobar wasn't much of a hitter, but Yost insisted he batted leadoff due to his uncanny ability to get on base. And like many of Yost's head-scratching decisions, it paid off time and time again. And no one understood how or why. Kane's effusive personality elevated the clubhouse, and he was a team leader in that regard, despite the fact that he did not even own a baseball glove until he was 16 years old. Even though he's been gone for years, Kansas City Power and Light still buys the electricity generated by Lorenzo Kane's smile. The Royals' front office, like the United States government, continued to develop a defense-first strategy. The most heroic defender on the squad was Alex Gordon. He didn't need alien technology to achieve greatness. Nobody's gonna outwork Alex, Gordon's brother Derek, pitcher for the Kansas City T-Bones said. He just needed a stint in the minors and an utterly inspired move to left field. He put in the work and made his way back to the majors. He wasn't a spectacular hitter, not to say he didn't have his moments, but that wasn't the royal way. 
Gordon rarely receives credit for his athleticism, which made him a star. He was such a powerful defender with such impressive speed in the outfield, the Pentagon put him on their payroll and he was once called upon to intercept and dispose of a North Korean nuke in Hawaii. Kim Jong-un secretly entered into peace talks shortly after the incident. Gordon was charged with an error in only 1.3% of the 1,382 games he played in the outfield. That number is so low I had to phone a friend to make sure I was doing simple math correctly. That makes him the 11th best outfielder by fielding percentage on the all-time list and third for outfielders that have played over 10,000 innings. Even if he was an occasional liability at the plate, his eight gold gloves and unbelievable defensive numbers cemented his status as the greatest outfielder in franchise history. In 2011, more players to make names for themselves later joined the roster. Eric Hosmer, the guy your girlfriend ditched you for when you were a sophomore in high school, and Mike Moustakis, who looked like he had been buying cans of Skull from disaffected country store cashiers since he was 14. Both could hit and hit for power, and both were aggressive and adroit defenders, but each brought vastly different energies to the dugout. Hosmer had a swagger and confidence that looked entirely alien in a Royals uniform. He was calm and in control at the plate, and was a brilliant clutch hitter when he wasn't grounding into double plays. He had such a coolness about him, his air-conditioned presence was mandatory at mound meetings. First base coach Rusty Kuntz, who has suffered through more miserable Missouri summers than any God-fearing Christian ought to, said he would have quit the team if Hosmer hadn't been so cool. Moustakis, on the other hand, had the tense and unnerving aura of an illegal dogfight. KCPD would take him on ride-alongs for their own security. He seemed like he salvaged his bedding from a dumpster behind Home Depot, sleeping on sun-parched wooden pallets, fiberglass insulation, swaddled in freight blankets and resting his head on a pillowcase made of sandpaper. I've heard he owns a bar in Sturgis and plans to retire there. In August of that year, the crowning piece was added to the lineup. Crouching behind home plate like a smiling golden idol, Salvador Perez presided over games as the heart and defensive captain of the team. He always looked like he was having a good time and even though you can never understand what he was saying, you knew he was incapable of saying anything even vaguely deprecating. He had an arm like a railgun and could pop up his 240-pound frame to throw out a runner like he was built on springs. In his debut as a Royal in August of 2011, Salvi made himself an indispensable member of the lineup. He threw out two runners, singled, and drove in a run. It wasn't much, but it was the epiphany Kansas City had waited decades for. It was a sign. For the first time in a long time, hope began to spring from the fountains beyond the walls. Two notable things happened in the 2012 season. Firstly, Gerard Dyson, a come-up kid from the public housing sector of Macomb, Mississippi, would be granted a full-time spot on the roster. Dyson was so fast, the opposing pitcher would back up the third baseman when Dyson hit a ground ball. He took over the spot in right field for the season as Lorenzo Cain convalesced from various injuries. Dyson seemed to magically appear under deep fly balls. There was no ball he couldn't chase down. However, his start with the Royals the previous season was slow and he was sent to the minors for most of 2011. 
But there are rumors he was actually sojourning with a band of Sufi mystics deep in the Arabian deserts, learning the secrets of Tayelard, a form of thaumaturgical teleportation, the name loosely translating as the folding of the earth. When he returned, he stole bases like they were 10 feet apart and Alex Gordon once had to wave him off as he seemingly materialized out of thin air while Gordon was trying to make a catch deep on the warning track in left field. When asked about his supernatural abilities, he would laugh and dismissively say, That's what speed do. The second big highlight of the 2012 season was when the All-Star Game was held at Kauffman Stadium, forcing the baseball world and fans of the game to acknowledge that Kansas City was... A place. I don't think anyone was willing to concede more than that at that point. With the exception of Mike Sweeney, Kansas City's own Christian gentleman and lone bright spot during the dark times, it was the first time in more than a decade Major League Baseball fans knew the names of the players sitting in the Royals' dugout. Billy Ray Butler, fan favorite and early rebuild pioneer who Royals fans took to calling country breakfast, was selected by American League manager Ron Washington to play as a reserve in the All-Star game because neither fans nor players had voted in a single representative from the host city. Butler came up with Gordon in 2007 and eventually became the best hitter on the squad, but in 2009 alone committed 10 errors at first base. With defensive numbers like that, Butler took over the designated hitter spot as the only grand slams being pounded by the Royals were at the Denny's across the street. Billy was a fan favorite, and the roar that erupted across western Missouri and eastern Kansas when he stepped into the batter's box was so loud the local news advised area residents to take shelter fearing a possible tornado. The eerie distant wail of tornado sirens lost in the roar of the crowd signaled the return of big league baseball to Kansas City. Despite grounding out after a six pitch at bat, Butler revealed to the world that Kansas City was still a baseball town and the fans, louder than an F5 touchdown, were ravenous to reclaim the royal crown that was rightfully theirs. All of a sudden, Kansas City baseball mattered again. Please excuse the interruption. If you want to hear this entire 90-minute program without any interruptions, head over to Baseball Will Break Your Heart's Patreon and get it for free when you subscribe for just $5 a month. There you will have access to exclusive content and conversations about baseball history. And you can listen to miniature versions of features like this that explore baseball history and heartbreaks every month. Now, back to the show. Going into the 2013 season, Kansas City was missing a bona fide starter. For better or worse, Grinke was gone, and in another controversial move, general manager Dayton Moore acquired starting pitchers Big Game James Shields and Wade Davis from the Tampa Bay Rays. Though 2012 was a slight improvement for the Royals, for many, this was a controversial move that was widely believed to have been made too soon and at too great a cost. Joe Posnanski seemingly had a bone to pick with Moore about the decision. He said, I despise the Royals' trade of late Sunday night. Despise, deplore, deride, and disapprove. Maybe he was just bitter no one tried to win while he was covering the team. 
Shields was given a two-year contract, and it was completely unfathomable to Royals fans and totally inconceivable to Major League Baseball fans that the Royals were only two seasons away from the most surprising postseason run since the 1969 Miracle Mets. Plenty of teams rebounded from losing seasons to make a run all the way to the Fall Classic in that stretch, but none of them have been as thoroughly dismissed as the Royals after posting a losing record in 17 of the previous 18 seasons. Teams have had bad stretches, but the Royals were just a bubonic plague outbreak away from being in the literal Dark Ages. Shields and Davis seemed like a waste of resources that could be spent on signing and developing prospects. It was strange seeing a big-name pitcher like Shields on the mound wearing a Royals uniform. It was even more peculiar to see a Royals front office decision that actually signaled a desire to win. Jurgens became a team sponsor due to all the hand-wringing involved in making the bold and unprecedented move to at least try and win baseball games. Shields had performed well in Tampa Bay's unexpected 2008 World Series run, receiving the only win of the series, and in 2011 was voted to the All-Star team and pitched 11 complete games, a rarity in modern baseball. The moniker Big Game James was a bit of a misnomer for his time in Kansas City, but he was exactly the kind of veteran talent the club needed to crawl out of the dungeons of the Central Division. Shields pitched well through 2013, and in the final months of the season, the Royals introduced their young ace, Jordano Ventura. There is a shared pain and emptiness when Royals fans are brought to remember their ace. His death in the Dominican Republic in 2017 was an actual tragedy, incomparable to the pithy frustrations endemic to athletic contests. But his short career in Kansas City was an absolute triumph. He was 22 years old when he took the mound for the Royals. He was recruited by and came up through the Royals Academy in the Dominican Republic and signed with the team when he was 17 years old for $28,000. He was raw talent. There's a moment in the creation of every masterpiece when the artist's vision begins to take shape and glimpses of the finished brilliance can be seen. Like David emerging from the marble, Ventura was a masterpiece just beginning to take shape. Was he the best pitcher Kansas City ever had? Not even close. But it was thrilling to see such a young player with so much promise on the mound at Kaufman, whipping 102 mile an hour fastballs across the plate. Perez's mitt snapping with such a whip crack it would startle the stoners in the cheap seats from their indolent stupors, spilling their beer from their commemorative cups and dropping their heavily relished Sheboygans they had meticulously topped with french fries, their eyes darting around with the paranoia of feral cats. Kansas City was blessed to have him for the time they did, foozled Sheboygans and all. The emergence of strong starting pitching was a stride in the right direction, but it was the bullpen Ned Yost assembled in 2013 that turned the upstart Royals into legitimate contenders almost overnight.
The ancient Greeks told tales of a hellbound creature they named Cerberus. A massive three-headed hound that guarded the gates of Hades, preventing the souls of the damned from escaping. Yost, guided by familiar spirits, pulled Wade Davis from the starting rotation in late 2013 and moved him to the bullpen to join Kelvin Herrera and Greg Holland to lock out batters in the late innings. It was classic Yost devil magic, because by 2014, if you were facing the Royals and trailing by the sixth inning, you were in hell, and relievers Wade Davis, Kelvin Herrera, and Greg Holland were the Cerberus ensuring your everlasting damnation. There was little hope of escape, and very few did. The seventh, eighth, and ninth innings were their own circles of hell for opposing batters when facing the Fountain City Cerberus. In 2014, the trio won a terrifying 72-1 when called upon to protect the lead after seven innings. Enrollment in Little League play dropped off during those years, as the prospect of facing such a beast someday proved too frightening for young boys of fragile constitution. Even grown men would see the beast in their dreams, rising dark and terrible from the fountains, blocking out the sun like the elder gods of some Lovecraftian tale, wearing crowns made from the bats and bones of the men they devoured and passed into the void. Bedwetters regressed, and wives woke up to their husbands' otherworldly cries of anguish and sorrow, and began to dread they were no longer the men they had married. When asked what is best in life, the heads of the Cerberus responded in unison. To strike out the side, to see them driven from the field, and to hear the lamentations of their women. Hope had now found fertile ground in the despair and discarded remains of American League batters. The 2013 season was a turning point for the Royals. Their defensive brilliance began to show as they started the season without committing a single error in their first seven games, a record for the franchise. They stayed competitive throughout the season, grinding out their 82nd win with a walk-off grand slam on September 22nd, securing their first winning season in a decade. Fans who would kid each other about the Royals making a playoff run in 2013 were completely unprepared for the Shakespearean madness that awaited them in 2014. What was to be or not to be would not be determined until the final out and the final act of a royal drama fit only for the grandest stage. Thank you for listening to Chapter 2 of A Royal Tragedy. Join us next week to hear how the Royals almost blew their entire season playing the wrong game, but somehow ended a 29-year playoff drought. A Royal Tragedy has been a production of Baseball Will Break Your Heart. Researched, written, and narrated by me, Paul J. Atwood, and scored and produced by the talented Joe Newman. Baseball Will Break Your Heart is a two-man operation and we need your help growing the show. So please rate and review. Tap five stars and say whatever you want. If you hate it, that's fine. Hit five stars and tell us all about it. If you hate me and you want to point out everything I got wrong, that's great. 
give us a five-star rating, and just unload in the review. Not only does that help grow the show, it makes the review section fun to read, and we're here to have fun. Even if it is at my own expense. Most importantly, tell your friends and family about us. Your exes and secret crushes, even strangers on the street or the person stuck next to you in traffic. Just look them square in the face and tell them, Baseball will break your heart. They'll know what you're talking about. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for the continuation of A Royal Tragedy, presented by Baseball Will Break Your Heart.